Part two of the Counter Reformation in Scandinavia and Poland by Martin Philipson from the History of All Nations from Earliest Times, Volume twelve, The Religious Wars, translated under the supervision of John Henry Wright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Nater. At the close of the Middle Ages, Ivan III had inaugurated a new epoch for the Russian Empire. This remarkable man, with his cool, refined cruelty, without a single sympathetic trait in his character, was the creator of modern Russia. He put an end forever to Tartar rule and brought to a close the destructive wars against the small, half-independent princes, thus securing the independence and unity of Russia. But he did more. He asserted his claim to all lands that had once been Russian, a claim that was to lead to the destruction of the Lithuanian kingdom, and he declared himself the protector of the Greek Orthodox Church in foreign lands, a step that forced Russia to assume an aggressive policy against Turkey and Poland. This same prince built up a strong absolutism within his dominions, secured quiet and order to his subjects, framed laws, and founded a standing army, he was a Peter the Great at the close of the 15th century. He was succeeded by Vasily IV Ivanovich, 1505-1533. As his father had put an end to the independence that the great Novgorod had enjoyed for several hundred years, Vasily deprived Pskov of its liberty and at the same time of its prosperity. He conquered Smolensk, then a city of Polish Lithuania. His father had entertained close relations with the German Empire. Vasily kept up this friendship, and Maximilian I sent as envoy to Moscow the Baron of Herbertstein, author of the extremely interesting Rerum Moscoviticarum Commentarii. Vasily's son, Ivan IV, surnamed the Terrible, 1533-1585, was a prince of far greater ability and power than his father. To understand and appreciate justly his reign, we must take into consideration the state of affairs in Russia after Vasily's death. Grand Prince Ivan was only three years of age when he nominally succeeded to the throne. His near relatives perished in the struggle for the regency, and the boyars, the nobility of office in Russia, seized control of the government and treated the young prince with insolence. They were unable, however, to establish their rule firmly. Disorder, intrigue, murder, and all sorts of violence prevailed all over the land. There were even risings among the common people long-suffering and submissive as are the russians of the lower classes such was the school in which ivan grew up he learned in it dissimulation hardness and cruelty these seemed to him the only means by which to maintain the power of the crown and the unity of the empire when fourteen years of age he seized with a firm hand the reins of government remorselessly put to death all the leaders of the nobility and assumed first of all russian princes the title of czar in 1584. Full of contempt for the rudeness, barbarism, and ignorance of his people, he strove to attract to his country foreign scholars, artisans, and mechanics, and by their means to secure for Russia the advantages, wealth, and power of Western civilization. An English merchant fleet having found its way to the White Sea, Ivan gave them a ready welcome and entered into friendly relations with their country. He published the first systematic Russian code of law, by the side of the irregular levies of the lesser nobility and their retainers, he organized a permanent guard, the Strelzi, 
to remedy the evil of varying religious views and practices he convoked at moscow in 1551 a council the decrees of which the stolavnie or book of the hundred chapters form to this day the basis of the russian ecclesiastical polity they bear upon the discipline and elementary instructions of the clergy deal with superstitions and crimes and present russian faith and russian morals in a definite and intended contrast to those of the west this did not interfere with the civilizing efforts of the tsar and his advisers ivan had a printing press set up in moscow and the first book printed in russia appeared there in fifteen sixty four he had been reigning long and wisely when he fell severely ill and the boyars who thought him near his death turned openly against him and went back to their old practices this awakened in ivan memories of his sad childhood he became a prey to incessant suspicions and vindictive rage and determined to crush the least show of independence he decimated the higher nobility and even his very best friends killing many of them with his own hand whole cities were ruined on the calumnious charge of a worthless knave novgorod was almost wholly destroyed and thousands of its inhabitants were tortured to death in a fit of frenzy he slew his eldest son who resembled him in many ways in short he suffered from that tyrannical mania that affected so many roman emperors the roman people rid themselves of such monsters by assassination the russians more servile submitted and suffered but they called him ivan the terrible meanwhile however the tsar was prosecuting his wars but fortune had forsaken him neither against the poles nor against the crim tatars was he successful the former and also the swedes drove him out of the baltic provinces the latter came and burned down moscow the kremlin alone escaping on the other hand some russian adventurers unsupported by their government made the beginning of a very important conquest two brothers named stroganov large dealers in salt and peltries determined to seek the market beyond the ural mountains which at that time bounded the geographical knowledge of the russian people they entrusted the leadership of the expedition to a cossack yermak who collected a number of companions and crossed the mountains in fifteen seventy nine they took an active part in the quarrels of the transuralian princes and possessed themselves of the land of khan kushtum and his capital sibir situated on the irtish from this city the whole territory beyond the mountains was called siberia yermak went back to russia and the two stroganovs hastened to convey their unexpected conquest to ivan and to extend their discoveries farther and farther eastward such were the insignificant beginnings of the vast asiatic empire of russia worn out by excesses of all kinds ivan the fourth died in fifteen eighty five in the fifty-fifth year of his age his son and successor fyodor was weak in body and mind his father had for that reason appointed a council of regency consisting of five boyars foremost among whom were nikita romanovich brother of the young tsar's mother and boris godunov brother of fyodor's wife but these regents quarrelled at last boris godunov treacherously seized the supreme authority by overthrowing his opponents putting some to death and banishing others it was then that siberia began to serve as a place of exile godunov was now virtual master though he left fyodor the title of tsar as the latter was childless boris conceived the bold plan of exterminating the relatives of the legitimate ruler and securing the crown for himself and his descendants fyodor's younger half-brother dimitri demetrius was secretly murdered 
and his mother shut up in a convent. The few relatives of the Tsar disappeared one after another in a way that could scarcely be called accidental. Godunov then set himself to secure the favour of the clergy. He made the Russian church independent of the Patriarch of Constantinople by declaring the Metropolitan of Moscow Patriarch of the whole North. He won the nobles by depriving the Russian peasants of their right of migrating freely, thus making them real serfs bound to the soil in 1592. The influential classes having thus been secured, the way to the throne was prepared for him when Fyodor died childless in 1598, and the ruling house of Muscovy ended with him. No one thought of offering the crown to some other one of the numerous descendants of Rurik. It was an easy thing for the grateful clergy to induce the people to call for the coronation of Boris Godunov. The great National Assembly, Duma, of bishops, boyars, princes, and representatives of the city merchant guilds, approved the choice. For some time, Boris, for form's sake, refused to accept the proffered crown. At length, however, he submitted to God's will, and was solemnly crowned in September 1598. He had reached his goal, but, as is wont to be the case with usurpers, he met with great difficulties, as soon as the people had had time to take a calm view of the situation. The peasants could not forget or forgive the loss of their liberty of migrating. The boyars would not forget that Boris had been one of their number. The usurper, full of suspicion, dealt harshly with both classes. The Romanov family, that had once stood so near the throne, were deprived of their possessions and banished. Their chief, Prince Fyodor Nikitich, was shorn and shut up in a monastery as a monk under the name of Philaretus. All the higher nobility were soon embittered against the new Tsar. But his worst foes were the very clergy whom he had lately so favoured. The cause of their estrangement was Boris's endeavour to encourage intercourse with foreign nations, to attract strangers to Russia, and, last and worst, to found in Moscow a university after the Western plan, and invite to it learned men from other parts of Europe. A terrible famine added to the universal discontent. Under these circumstances there suddenly appeared a youth claiming to be Dmitri, Fyodor's younger brother. Who he really was no one could tell, but his speech and general appearance rendered it probable that he was a Pole, a tool of the Jesuits, who wished with his aid to establish Catholicism in Russia. No one now doubts that Dmitri was an impostor. It is an established fact that a groom of the Polish Prince Vishniewiecki, in an alleged severe sickness, asserted, while confessing to a Jesuit, that he was the real Dmitri. He said that someone else had been slain under his name, and to prove his identity he showed a gold cross adorned with diamonds and various papers, in 1603. His master and his master's family believed his assertion. The Jesuits were naturally much interested in him, and had him enter a Jesuit college, to be taught the truths of the Catholic religion. King Sigismund III, as a dutiful pupil of his father's, at once acknowledged him as Tsar Dmitri, gave him a pension of 20,000 marks, and granted permission to all Poles to join the great prince in his attempt to recover his empire. Dmitri solemnly pledged himself to make Catholicism the state religion of Russia, to marry Marina Mniczech, daughter of the voivode of Sandomir, and to surrender various provinces to the Republic of Poland. He then started on his expedition in August 1604, accompanied by many thousand Polish nobles. As soon as the invading army reached Russian soil, the general dissatisfaction with Boris, 
the veneration entertained for the old legitimate dynasty, and besides the force of example, brought multitudes of Russians over to the pretender. Boris died suddenly on April 13, 1605, having, it is supposed, poisoned himself in his despair. His widow and his son Fyodor were strangled by the populace. On June the 20th, 1605, the false Dmitri made his solemn entrance into Moscow in the midst of rapturous manifestations of joy. The mother of the real Dmitri was released from her imprisonment in a convent, and full of a vindictiveness against the Godunovs, did nothing to expose the impostor, though she did not formally acknowledge him as her son. The banished families, especially the Romanovs and the Shuiskis, returned, and the new Tsar began his reign wisely and mildly, but his past rose threateningly against him. He had to reward the greedy Poles who had accompanied him with Russian gold and Russian estates. Polish customs and Polish influence prevailed at his court. He entertained close relations with the hated West, and allowed the Jesuits to hold Catholic worship in the Kremlin. Finally, Dmitri wished to organize a standing army of foreigners, which was to be maintained, in large measure, at the expense of the Church. Marina, a Polish woman and a Catholic, was betrothed to Dmitri, and, a thing never done before, solemnly crowned as Tsarina. The fanatical hatred of the Russians against everything foreign, and especially against the Roman Catholic Church, now broke out in all its intensity. They, the only Orthodox believers, saw themselves delivered over to heretics and to their hated Polish neighbors. Prince Vasily Shuisky, whom Dmitri had unwisely pardoned for a former conspiracy, gave able leadership to the general discontent and strengthened it with his armed retainers. On May 17, 1606, a terrible riot broke out in Moscow, in which the pretender and his most prominent adherents, many Germans among them, were slain by the enraged mob. Other Poles, the Tsarina, the Mnichechs, and the Vishnevetskis included, were arrested and distributed among various Russian cities. Thus ended the reign of the impostor Dmitri after less than a year's duration. The throne was now vacant, and no legitimate climate was on hand. As an attack on the part of Poland was expected, the boyars, with the approval of the people, made Vasily Shuisky, leader of the insurrection, Tsar. He at once did away with all of Dmitri's innovations, made important concessions to the boyars, and, to prevent the imitation of the impostor's attempt, caused the body of the true Dmitri to be disinterred and publicly exposed. It began at once to work miracles, and Dmitri was added to the saints of the Greek calendar. It was unavoidable that the elevation of Shuisky should excite the envy and jealousy of many great nobles. They sent to Poland to secure there a new false Dmitri, and the Poles were quite ready to encourage civil war in Russia, and thus weaken a rival at whose expense Poland might grow rich. The new adventurer, as to whose origin nothing certain is known, maintained that he was Dmitri, and that he had escaped from the May massacre in Moscow. Accompanied by numerous Polish volunteers, he entered Russia in June 1607, and penetrated as far as the gates of Moscow, where he entrenched himself in the hamlet of Tushino. Hence he is known to Russian tradition as the Thief of Tushino. Many Russians joined him, and Marina, having escaped from confinement, shamelessly acknowledged him as her husband. Shuisky, threatened by danger so near, turned for assistance to Sigismund's enemy, Charles IX of Sweden. Five thousand Swedes, under the able generals de la Gardie and Horn, came to his relief, 
and easily routed the undisciplined mob of rebels in 1608. When Sigismund saw that the thief of Tushino was making no headway, he deemed it best to turn the civil troubles of Russia wholly to his own advantage, declared war against that empire in 1609, and after a long and heroic resistance took the important fortress of Smolensk. The second false Dmitri and Marina withdrew to Kaluga, where they carried on a plundering warfare till he was assassinated in December 1610. These disturbances gave rise to a profound dissatisfaction with Shuisky's rule. The discontent broke out in open rebellion when, in June 1610, a Polish army under Stanisław Żółkiewski won a brilliant victory over the Tsar at Moshaisk. The Moscovites rose against their ruler and forced him to submit to the tonsure and enter a monastery. The rapid approach of the Poles forced the Council of Boyars to acknowledge Władysław, son of Sigismund, as Tsar, but not before he had pledged himself to protect the greek church indeed to join it as well as to admit the cooperation of the boyars in legislation and in levying the taxes the newly elected czar did not abide in russia long but soon returned to poland his father seemed disposed to make use of his son's new dignity for the purpose of plundering and robbing russia and a polish garrison kept moscow in order by fire and sword Complete anarchy now prevailed in 1611. Marina Mniczech proclaimed as Tsar her son by the Tushino thief. A third pseudo-Dimitri arose in the person of the deacon Isidore, who found adherents in Pskov. De Lagardie and his Swedes seized the fortress of Kexholm in Russian Finland and forced Novgorod the Great to recognize a Swedish prince, Charles Philip, as Tsar. Russia seemed lost, a helpless prey to foreigners. She was saved by the patriotism, the courage, the resolution of the common people, that multitude which the worthless and selfish nobles loved to consider and to treat as slaves. A butcher of Nizhny Novgorod, Kozma Minin, summoned first his fellow citizens, and then, when these had readily answered his call, all true Russians to deliver their country from Polish heretics. Crowds came together to accomplish this task. The inhabitants of Great Novgorod were easily induced to renounce their Swedish prince. The citizens of Pskov likewise drove out the priest Isidore. The Russians, once more united, attacked the Poles near Moscow, and after a fierce battle lasting four days, August 20 to August 23, 1612, won a complete victory. Two months later, the Polish garrison of the Kremlin surrendered after a brave defense, and, with the exception of Smolensk, all Russia was now rid of foreigners. The question of supreme moment was now to place the nation under the rule of an able and legitimate chief. The nobles, the higher clergy, and representatives of the cities and circles met together. After long deliberations, Michael, the son of that Fyodor Romanov whom Godunov had thrust into a monastery, was elected Tsar on February 21, 1613, because he was the youngest and least powerful of the candidates, and had, moreover, formally acknowledged the right of the boyars to cooperate in the government. During the following years, the Romanov dynasty established itself more and more firmly on the throne, and the year 1613 may be considered as having put a final stop to the confusion that had prevailed in Russian politics. The Romanovs are today the ruling dynasty of Russia. Charles IX had been unable to do anything to maintain the claims of his son, Charles Philip, to the Russian throne. He already had on his hands hostilities with Poland and with Denmark. 
in 1611. In this latter country, the peaceable Frederick II had, in the year 1588, been succeeded by Christian IV, then only eleven years of age. As soon as this prince became his own master, in 1569, he manifested a most ambitious spirit. He wished to acquire military fame, and turned upon Sweden, which he thought occupied in the Baltic provinces, and whose king he deemed weak and sickly. He found a pretext for war in certain disputes about the Lapland boundaries. His plan was at first successful. He defeated the Swedish king and took the important fortress of Kalmar. Before Charles IX could make that loss good, he died, October thirtieth, 1611, at the age of sixty. A strong, energetic, and even passionate man, of great sagacity, and with deep and lofty feelings. He had succeeded in directing the destinies of his people according to his purpose, because he understood that people, recognized their needs and desires, and helped them to realize them. He was succeeded by his son Gustavus II Adolphus, who was born on December ninth, 1594. This young prince had been most carefully educated by his father. He spoke Latin, German, Dutch, and French fluently, and had a fair knowledge of Greek, Polish, and Russian. When yet a lad, he had taken part in state affairs, as a listener mostly, but now and then called upon for advice. In the campaign of 1611 he had played a not inglorious part. For a youth of seventeen the situation presented great difficulties. Charles, with his peculiar conscientiousness, had left to the estates the choice between Sigismund's brother, Duke John, and his own son, Gustavus Adolphus. The choice fell on Gustavus, but John, as compensation, received all of East and West Gotland as an almost independent duchy. The young king's brother, Charles Philip, obtained Sudermanland together with Norike and Vermland. Thus the unity of the nation was once more broken. Besides, the nobles took advantage of the youth and insecure position of the new prince to impose upon him their cooperation by means of the royal council. The young king's chancellor was Axel Oxenstern, only twenty-eight years of age, but already an experienced statesman and an indefatigable worker. Bloody and costly wars were part of the inheritance which Charles IX had left to his son, and one of the first cares of Gustavus was to put a measurably satisfactory end to them. It was clear that, in spite of their heroic valor, the Swedes could not face their foes on both the east and the west. It was fortunate for Sweden that the Danish nobles did not look favorably on their king's military successes, fearing lest he might grow proud thereby and destroy them and their liberties. So Christian IV was disposed to listen to overtures of peace, though the terms he granted the Swedes were quite severe. By the Treaty of Knerot, January 1613, Gustavus renounced his sovereignty over Lapland and redeemed Elfsborg, the only Swedish port on the North Sea, at a cost of a million rextalers, not inconsiderable sum for the times. To guard against the return of such humiliations, Gustavus contracted an alliance of fifteen years with the States-General of the Netherlands, but with a keen eye to the future stipulated that it should in no wise affect the supremacy and control of the Baltic Sea. The Dutch envoys described the young king as slender in figure, shapely, with a pale complexion, somewhat long features, light hair, and a pointed blond beard. Great things were even then expected of him, and men praised his kindliness, his prudence, and his eloquence. 
Gustavus, having no longer anything to fear on the side of Denmark, determined to profit by the confusion prevailing in Russia, and met with some successes, though he failed to retake Pskov. In February 1617, a peace was concluded at Stolbova, by which Sweden obtained possession of Ingermanland and Karelia. This was an acquisition of the greatest importance, as Russia was now shut out from the Baltic Sea. Ingermanland and Karelia were bulwarks not only for Finland, but for Sweden herself. How wisely the king had judged was shown a hundred years later, when those provinces were restored to Russia. I hope to God, Gustavus said as the treaty was passed, that the Russians will not now find it easy to cross this brook, the Baltic. Gustavus made it one of the first aims of his reign to secure for Sweden the Baltic Sea and its shores. A good beginning was the setting aside of his Russian rivals. Sweden now stood forth bold and powerful, full of Protestant zeal and faith, the shield of the Reformation in Europe and especially in Germany. The efforts of the Catholics had proved utterly unavailing. They had resulted in utterly eradicating from the people's hearts all attachment to the old doctrines and intensifying their hatred of Catholicism. For a few years longer, Rome flattered itself that, with the aid of Poland, it might win Russia to the Catholic faith. To this end, the Jesuits had applied all the means of deceit, falsehood and violence so characteristic of their order but the Russian people, grown conscious of their own strength, had broken the net woven about them, and Poland and Jesuits had been ingloriously driven out of the land. The counter-reformation in the northeast retained only one of its conquests, Poland. This was a misfortune for that noble country. Catholic bigotry worked the same ruin for the Poles that it wrought in Spain and in Italy. The lands where Rome prevailed were doomed to decay and sometimes utter ruin, while Protestant countries grew more and more powerful and enterprising. Whether one looks upon it with joy or with regret, it cannot be gainsaid. At the beginning of the 17th century, Protestant nations were steadily growing in power, greatness and prosperity. The nations over which Jesuitism and Romanism had control were showing signs of rapid and apparently irretrievable decay. To revert to Poland, how successfully, how smoothly had the transition seemed to be made from the old dynasty to the new order, whilst neighboring Russia, after the extinction of its hereditary house, sank into apparently hopeless confusion. And yet the heroic firmness of the Russian people had extricated them out of this confusion and had laid the foundations of a mightier and larger development whilst in Poland the germ of decay that lay in its very vitals was rapidly destroying the body politic. The clergy kept the lower classes in subjection, whilst themselves serving the interests of a rude, selfish and dissolute nobility. But in Germany the momentous question was, into which of the two camps, that of Protestantism or that of the Counter-Reformation, the nation would pass. Not the German people alone, but the whole West was profoundly interested in the issue. End of part two of The Counter-Reformation in Scandinavia and Poland by Martin Philipson.